You are listening to the Where's My Burrito podcast, where each episode we interview a different person who lost their burrito. Today on the show with me, I have Elaine. Elaine, please, Hello. T- please tell me of the trials and the aftermath that you have suffered after losing your burrito. Um, I, I, I think I've ended up on the wrong podcast because I haven't lost a burrito. But you know what I have done? Go on. Learned about some really nifty board games. Oh, what kind of board games are they? Are they like Monopoly? Efka. What? We don't talk about that game on this podcast. Well, it's a funny question. Everyone's, everyone's had that question and nobody knows how to respond to it. Because what do you say t- to someone who... It's clearly not into board games when you say, oh, I played board games and they say, oh, like Monopoly. And I don't want to be an ass. Right. But what do you what do you say in that situation without well, going? I, I no. say yes. I say, yeah. yeah, like like Monopoly. But there's a whole varied plethora of different types of games. And then I go into a spiel about but, until but, until they regret asking that question. The point, <laughs> That's not a good. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm kidding. OK. But the thing is, right, pe- but, people yeah. people okay. who ask that question, right, they themselves hate Monopoly. It's just that there's there's that closest point of relation to to exactly. you in the conversation. So how do you say, without being rude, no, nothing like Monopoly, and without seeming elitist, but also say, hey, there's this wonderful world of board games that well, you that, should that come and try. That is normally what I say. Like, I know yeah. I was I was kind of kidding, but, mm. but in there there was a little bit of truth. I do normally say, yeah, like Monopoly, but there's loads of other different types of board games, and it doesn't matter what kind of thing that you're into, whether you like storytelling or, or sitting around and just rolling a dice then that's there's loads of different board games i i really like the fact that they're trying to engage with you with something that you've told them that you like to do and they want to know more about it or their interest it also depends how they ask it you know what i'm interested in what, what games are we going to be talking about today we are going to be talking about age of steam Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a big game in terms of when i say big game what i mean because clearly I don't know better adjectives than big. What I mean is, it's uh, that's a classic game. That's that's a game that's been around for ages, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been around for a long yeah. time. But now it's got artwork by Ian O'Toole. I know, so, so we're automatically interested, we're obviously, right? Yeah, <laughs> like oh, Ian O'Toole artwork. Fine, I'll try this classic game I've never tried. Or mm. or even even I would say. Um, stubbornly resisted do you yes. know what i mean okay. yeah. yeah at least for me i yeah. there, there is that sort of like oh anyway, we start we're just saying which games we're talking about today we're not talking about the games yet we can't do the tangents no oh no, no. okay age of steam classic trains martin wallace next uh and we're going to be talking about cloud spire oh that that's a that's a big game, Elaine. Are you sure this podcast Another can handle game. two big games? Well, there's a third big game. Third big game. Uh, Tainted Grail. Wow. Can we can we do the song? Tainted Grail. That I'm not, song. Yeah, that song. Okay. I'm not gonna sing because okay. I I'm not the one from the no pun included family <laughs> that people want to hear sing. That's Bessie. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> We've been desperately trying to get her to howl, and so far, sometimes when she's upset and she she kind of lets out this bark. It sort of sounds like a howl, but not really. No. Pet <laughs> owners who have dogs that howl, please tell us how you do it. <laughs> please send send your comment to nopunincluded.com slash podcast whereupon you will find 
episode 7, which is this episode, and you can leave a comment and say, Efka and Elaine, or Elaine and Efka, this is how you make your dog howl. This is how you will regret your choices. No no suggestion is a wrong suggestion. We are here to hear them. (laughs) Or anything else you might have to say about a board game that we're talking... Or or not about board games. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Tell us how your day was. (laughs) Elaine, shall we talk about Age of Steam? Don't you mean Age of Epic Game Store, Efka? I'm so sorry, but there's simply no room in this podcast for video game jokes. You will have to show yourself out. Age of Steam is a classic game from designer Martin Wallace. There was a slight pause there because his name is not on the box anymore or or hasn't been for some time and the rights to the game have been disputed but now Martin Wallace has approved this version of Age of Steam as as a legitimate version of Age of Steam even though his name isn't on the box or in the rule book or It's like There's, an Alan Moore thing, right? Well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like that where he just I mean, I'm, I don't want to compare Martin no, Wallace to Alan Moore, but Cuz cuz Alan Moore had uh you know, he doesn't want his name. Uh-huh. Right? On on the thing whereas uh, the whole thing with Age of Steam and Martin Wallace and and Eagle Griffin and whoever else printed it is very complicated and I really just don't want to get into it. So Can we talk about trains instead? Yeah, then? let's talk about trains. So, uh, well, do you know what? I kind of dread talking about Age of Steam, <laughs> if I'm honest, because I'm, I'm saying words and just waffling just to prolong the inevitable because I think after this podcast, a lot of people might hate me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so on No Pun Included, we're known for being objective, or, no, I, I mean, not obje- objective is a rubbish word, because, you know, what is objectivity in reviews, you, you know? mean, yeah, okay. I mean, we're, we're looking at all sides, is, okay. what, is what I mean, right? And I, I think we're trying we to... We try and be as objective as we can, as subjective people yeah exactly right well not even as objective but we try we try and have a varied perspective right. i think and with age of steam i know a lot of people love that game mm-hmm. but honestly like, i just don't see why people think this game is good it's not good it's not a good game and i i know i'm gonna draw a lot of ire but but okay let's 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 tell people what age of steam is right would you give us a little rundown of an idea. Age of Steam is a pickup and delivery game where you have different types of goods that are, need to be delivered to different cities and to do that you have to build train tracks from one city to another. That's uh, basically it. That's basically and it. And it's in on a lot of hexes. A lot yeah. of green bland Hexes, <laughs> uh, hey, which now look much nicer because of you know tools artwork. They do, they do look very nice. It's still very flat colors, but it's nice flat colors. It's a nice color palette that we have right now. So, uh, yeah, Age of Steam, uh, the new edition came in a deluxe deluxe box. If people are familiar with Vital Lacerda's games from Eagle and Griffin, you know it's a similar kind of deal. It's a big sturdy box, about the same size as those games, and it has an insert, and all the maps are out of thick cardboard, and the tiles are out. A thick cardboard and the and it has tiny nice. tiny poker chips. Yes, it does have tiny tiny poker chips. I I'm I can't remember if that was a special add-on mm-hmm. or if they come mm-hmm. by default in the box. And also, uh, you can now 
instead of having uh, the, you had the option on Kickstarter instead of having little cubes you can now have little wooden trains mm. which also look very pretty and I there's something like six maps in total in the box of all different places yeah so one covers like North America one covers somewhere in Europe I don't, I don't remember I think there's Switzerland but the, the point is that each map changes up the rules slightly and changes yeah. up the way that you have to plan how to deliver from one place to another yes but the gist of it is that at the start of the game the map each city on the map is going to be populated with random colored cubes and all the cities also have ran not random well predetermined colors and there are places called towns which you can later make into cities uh and those cities when you make them into cities if that color is still available you can choose what color it is but your objective is to draw routes and uh if there is a let's say blue cube on a city you have to deliver it through a route to a blue city. So the mm-hmm. blue city denotes that it wants blue goods. Mm-hmm. And the cubes are effectively goods. The problem is... So there's straight up about three or four problems in terms of player perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't mean problems mm-hmm. with the game, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are you trying to solve? So, first of all, you barely have any money. And to do anything in this game, you have to have quite a bit of money... And the only time you can get more money is at the very first stage of a round where the game lets you take out not infinite amount, but almost as many loans as you like. And that gives you $5 per loan. The problem is that at the end of every round, you will then be subtracted $1 per share you have issued. And a share is a loan you have taken. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but it does leave you the potential to go bankrupt at some point. Exactly. In which case, you are out of the game. What a fantastic addition to any game. And you just to have to game. sit there watching everyone else pop their trains down. And, and honestly, your thumbs. Uh, one thing I think people should know about Age of Steam is that if you've not played it before, and I mean, we're, I, I guess we're not super experienced in the whole train right. genre of games, but we've played 18xx and we've played... Great Western Trail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, quite a, uh, it's not quite a train game. It has trains in it, Efka. It, it's moves and shoes, as someone yeah. told me on Twitter. <laughs> That's a good good description. So I felt like, you know, I'm not... I'm not stupid going into this. I've experienced right. train games before. I know what's going on. It is brutally punishing. And two out of the five players that were playing got eliminated from mm, the game. Mm. Just because nobody was quite ready or aware how tight the calculations are and how um, you have to be just super precise about what you're trying to achieve out of this game. You have to be doing that maths all the time. Yes. And again, I don't count that as a negative because we I did preface this with I don't think this game is good. Right. But but that's that's fine. That's interesting. That's a puzzle you have to solve and that puzzle perhaps maybe the most punishing puzzle I've played in any game. See, I'm kind of the opposite. I didn't hate the game, but mm. I did dislike that because if you're not very quick with maths, mm. then it really slows slows everything down or, Oh, absolutely, yeah. Or you just have to go okay, I'll try this. Well, and, and and you can't afford to do that. You absolutely can't. But I think uh, what the who the game is trying to appeal to is people who play the same game over and over again. And I think sure. this game really rewards familiarity because 
the more you play a certain map, the more you understand that economic puzzle that you right. are facing, and the more you're used to the decisions that you are making. It's you know, it becomes like uh, I guess it's like slicing onion. The first time you slice onion, it's just a disaster. You're crying, everything hurts, uh, and the onions just Every sliding time I away. Every slice an onion, I cry. So well, no, okay, but you, then you get used to the crying, right? And it no longer slides around your chopping board. What? So. Have you never had onion slice around the chopping board? Slice around the chopping no. No, slide, sorry, slide no. around the chopping no. board. Have you not? No. You but mean I... you, you never had to learn that method where you make like a flower out of the onion. You slice it in a sort of a pattern to make to make sort of leaves and then you chop it. No, I'm not. And it's kind of held together in I place. I don't subscribe to how the establishment wants me to chop an onion. It's not the establishment, it it's I the want. French. It's the French method of French. chopping an onion. Okay, sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Moving, anyway, moving away from that perfect onion analogy, uh-huh. because I I think the whole crying and the sliding around, it just so what the you're saying Steam is experience all that over. you'll do better, but you'll still cry. Yeah, yeah, effectively, right. that that is what I'm saying. Uh, anyway, so you have to calculate these loans, how much you're going to need, and hope that you're right and it's not going to knock you out of the game, or that you're not making poor decisions. And then the game goes, wait a minute. Now you have to spend some of that money that maybe you planned for, maybe you didn't plan for, for a turn order auction. And turn order is so brutally important in this game mm-hmm. that basically turn order determines who's going to be first to build tracks, who's going to be first to deliver goods, who's going to be first to select one of the game-breaking special actions that right. let you perhaps go first when delivering goods in spite of who is already first delivering goods. And if that sounds convoluted, it's not. It it's it's fine. But what I'm trying to say is that the game gives you a lot of potential for swinging it the way you want it to swing, yeah. as long as you fork up money. And that right. money has to be part of your cal- calculations. But you know, never know exactly how much because part of it is having an auction, or part of it is someone getting ahead of you and building some tracks and then you're suddenly like ah now i have to build a longer track and i have to pay more money you're bidding a certain amount and then if you pass and you don't win the bid you still have to pay half that money and you've got nothing for it well it you've almost it- got nothing for it you 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 might have bumped yourself slightly in turn order mm-hmm. but you're still not going where you want to go. Usually it's being first that really matters. And then maybe or, if you're second, second, it's fine. Yeah, yeah first you know? or at least second. Well, if you're lost, you don't have to pay anything. If, if you passed out of the auction first, but if you just missed right. out on that, right? right? There is that runaway train leader type thing where if someone is making a lot of money, then they can bid more so they can go first or position themselves better so that they can do better again and make more money. So you do have that kind of steaming ahead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, I see. Uh, Elaine, I think you're alluding to one of the three problems that, that I have yeah. with the game. And one of those is that sometimes it's very evident who's going to win. And yeah. this game, as you've just heard, requires you to put a lot in of mental computations to get the answer that you want from it. And and it does take quite some time. A game of Age of Steam can easily take two hours. More, more, yeah. More. Mm. But the first problem is that sometimes it's evidently clear who's going to win Mm. because at a certain point, someone just dollops ahead and that's it. And I think again... Your your train pun wasn't as good as my train pun, dollops ahead. No. (laughs) No. But I think that, again, that's one of those problems of, you know, being not too familiar with the game or not too familiar with the map. But I'm wondering how much fun people are going to have actually trying to you know, really 
crack down on a map and figure mm. out how it works because the second problem that I've had with the game is that actually after about two thirds of it, it is incredibly dull. Yeah, it drags. It really, really it's drags. It's a stone drag because particularly if you know who's going to win and you're kind of just vying for second place or maybe. Yeah, that's because... You know, what you're doing in this game is you're trying to create networks and those Mm -hmm. networks will hopefully deliver goods that are profitable because the longer, there's there's a whole conundrum, the longer your network is, the harder it is and more expensive to run because you have to amp up your trains to be a certain level to deliver through longer routes but if you manage to create these long routes and have a good train and there's still a cube somewhere that you can deliver through very far away you'll get a a very huge income bump and income is important because that's money you get at the end of every round but also your victory points Mm. and after a certain point in the game You've sort of created the network already and the whole creation aspect flitters away. Yeah, and it's... what you're left with is there's a cube and I will maybe deliver that cube mm. if someone doesn't mm. get to that cube before me. They might need it. They might not need it. Mm. I'll bid on some turn order. Money sort of stops mattering towards the end of the game. And that cube will move and it'll increase income. It it kind of stops mattering because you're not trying to build your network anymore. Yeah, and nothing dynamic or variable happens. It's not just, you know, you stop building your network. It's just there's, there's nothing in the third act of the game that makes it interesting. It felt like the first and the second act of the game was the lead up. The build up, yeah. Yeah, the build up and there's a crescendo and then it suddenly sort of just keeps going but maybe that was just because it was our first play and i don't think either of us played for for you it was your Um, first play for me i i've played it three times now okay all right well maybe not then but for me then it was my first play and i hadn't built my network particularly well so by the time it got to that third act i wasn't really doing a lot because my trains weren't delivering very well and all i was doing was looking about the board going oh can i squeak this extra point out of this or Probably not, no, because there is also a a point where people can block you off. So you start building Mm. a track, you spend all this time and money and effort and brain power building this track, and then someone blocks you off. And you've got this kind of fluff of a network that doesn't really do a lot. And that that I've found quite frustrating. Well, that's part of the punishing nature of the game. I realise that. And, and I guess we found, from a different perspective, different problems with the game. You're struggling with the punishing nature of it. Mm. I'm struggling with just a very anticlimactic finish. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And I wanted to see if, uh, if the game's any different in its other iterations, because mm. Martin Wallace has designed... A couple of spin-offs, uh, mm. or I don't know which came first, but there's also, also Railways of the World, mm-hmm. which is a much less punishing experience. Elaine, did you enjoy Rail- Railways of the World? I enjoyed that less. <laughs> um, Sorry. There we go. And I've also tried out Steam, which is the sort of uh, in-between place, I think. And yeah. I, I didn't find it that different either, if I'm honest. You know, the same problem persists for all of them. It just I runs like out of steam. I'm sorry, it runs out of steam. steam. I am so sorry. I would like to see like an anti-pandemic version of this game where you're a disease and you're trying to spread out throughout a country as much as possible. I think that exists thematically. But <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
Because there's there's no plaguing. There we go. There's oh, a, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Well, all right. Yeah, sure. But with auctions and yeah. <laughs> and well, funny that you touch on pandemic. I would love to see someone take this. What is by now a very old system uh-huh. and and add some zhuzh to it. And uh-huh. I know there's going to be purists who are just probably gritting their teeth <laughs> listening to this right now. But you know what? I think this game needs. A good lift up and and a more dynamic finish. But let's not forget, this is an old game, and yeah. I think it just goes to show how far board games have come. Honestly. Finally, on a final note, I would like to talk a little bit about the production of the new ve- version mm. of Age of Steam. So there have been a number of errors on the board, and uh, there's apparently going to be decals sent out to Kickstarter backers. I don't know how that affects me because I just bought the game at Spiel, and so. I don't know if they're going to send those out Maybe to me. Maybe we can do it with Sharpie or something. I, I don't... But that doesn't... See, things like that don't bother me so much. What really bothered me is that I really like how normally Eagle and Griffin in these deluxe boxes do their inserts because they do... One of the things that I really, really appreciate if someone does a plastic insert because let's not forget that if there is a plastic insert in your game, you've just put a lot of plastic into this world that's probably not going to get recycled. And I somewhat begrudge that, but if it serves a function, then that's fine with Mm. me. But there are so many plastic inserts, 90% of them, that just don't work because they don't go all the way. And going all the way is putting a lid that fits on top Mm. and fits into the grooves, Mm -hmm. right? And Eagle and Griffin are very good at putting lids on top of their... Eagle Griffin, not Eagle and Griffin. I'm sorry, Eagle Griffin, right? Eagle Griffin are very good... at putting lids on top of their inserts, which I really, really appreciate. The problem with this edition is that everything is printed so, so tightly that my plastic insert not only just about barely fits, but is getting completely mashed by all the other components. Mm. And on top of that, because everything is so tight, I can't actually put the lid on top without <laughs> tearing it. So Who needs to put their lid on the board game? You're going to just play it all the time, no? Yeah, yeah. No, not not the not the box lid, you know, the plastic insert uh-huh. lid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, nobody needs that, right? Anyway, anyway, <laughs> there's my little gripe about components. One final thing, if you have feelings strong strong feelings about our discussion of age of steam please don't bottle those feelings inside of you in a seething ball of anger that you tuck away that will eventually unleash itself in the most inopportune moment instead take a moment have a deep breath and visit no pun included.com slash podcast go on episode seven and leave a nice gentle and constructive comment we would love to hear them, and we would love to talk to you about Age of Steam some more. Now, anyone who has a romanticised notion of birds has clearly never been at the seaside trying to eat a bag of chips. I've definitely been to the seaside trying to eat a bag of chips. That's a seagull, by the way. And I I quite like birds. Do you know, my mum told me that um, a seagull carried off a chihuahua near near where she lives. I was was aware of that, and uh, since we had our dog over there, I was very... uh, (laughs) Very trepidatious about taking her for walks. Every time she went in the garden, we were like, shoo, seagulls. Because there's lots of them there. Shall They're we talk huge. About, shall we talk about Tainted Grail? Let's. So Tainted Grail is a game that made me think I travelled back in time to 2017 when we played a game called Seventh Continent, uh, which was this massive, sprawling thing made out of cards that all had pictures on them. And those cards... cards 
not cards, lined up together via numbers at the edges of the cards. So for example, imagine a square card, and on the north side of the card you would have a number 002, and on the right side of the card 003, and on the bottom of the card you would have 004, and then at the top where it says 002, you put a card that's number 002 that's a bit more of the continent, of the terrain, of the landmass, of the map, of the territory. And that territory formed out of a array, a display, a whole smorgasbord of cards is the map of your adventure, if you will. I'm not sure you said cards enough. I, I, I think I think I covered it, but unlike Seventh Continent, so there's there's some key differences between those games. So they are both sprawling, big, narrative-based games. Uh, but whereas in Seventh Continent, the story sort of played out via cards, and the cards told you what's happening. There is instead now an adventure book, so you can interact with the cards. And look at the back of them, but there's also an adventure book, and, and an adventure book in the style of many adventure book games, where you go to a certain passage that you've been instructed to go to as you interact with the world, and then it tells you a thing that happens. Like, like you choose your own adventure. If you want to do this, go to this passage. If you want yes. to do this, go to this passage, yeah. I, I think we should start with Tainted Grail sort of describing the world. So it's meant to be... Uh, In Avalon. Like, it's kind of a knockoff Arthurian-type world. Yes, but also knockoff Dark Souls-type mm. world, where everything is And also grim. Diablo. Yeah, the world is dying... Uh, there's a very obvious Diablo reference mm. in, in one of the bits of the narrative that made me immediately jump out of the game and of the world is trying to create. Mm. But actually, I... I'm not sure this is a world that has anything to say yet, because we haven't... Uh, just to give a bit of a, I guess, disclaimer, we played this game for, I don't know, a good 10 hours already, mm -hmm. but we've only finished two of the 15 chapters, right. and it feels like we've barely sunk our teeth in. So there's there's a lot more to explore. So we're not authoritative on any of the narrative that necessarily spans out throughout this ridiculously sprawling big adventure mm. uh but we we've experienced some of it and obviously we're not going to be spoiling any of it or mm. anything like that but I, I i i i'm not sure that this is a world that has anything to say but i think i think the feel it's trying to create it's it, the aesthetic of it i i do i do like i do like the idea of this dying world and there are these uh, Meneer statues, which, I, as I've just found out, are actual things that are dotted across Europe oh, and cool. sometimes other continents. They're meant to be sort of obelisk-like stones, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I don't want to say a phallic-shaped like stone, but a phallic-shaped like stone, really. Uh, except, like Cleopatra's Needle? I guess. That shape? Yeah, I don't know what that is, I'm sorry. But oh, okay. in this game, they are not stones. They are massive statues of these grim-looking angel-like figures that oh. have been erected. I would describe them like angel-like figures. They're sort of hooded. Like the Angel of Glasgow? <laughs> yes, sure. Like Whatever the, it was called. No, uh, it, uh, it was the Angel angel of the Nold. Nold, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, which was a statue we saw when we were driving past Scotland. Anyway. Past uh, Scotland. Past Scotland, yeah. <laughs> They're these grim-looking statues, and they are what keep this world alive, because wherever we are is where humans are not meant to be, but they came there anyway and erected these statues that held the world together, but these statues are dying out, and when they die out, the weirdness, spelled W-I-R-D... No. W-Y-R-D. Sorry, W-Y-R-D yeah. uh, is, is keeping that reality at bay. It's sort of... Not at bay. It, it's, it's destroying everything that the Meneers are not protecting, effectively. Mm. 
Is that the same in real life then? Are those statues there as like protection? Is it like the ravens at the Tower of London? If if the statues are toppled, bad things will happen. Well, I'm not sure that anyone knows what the Meniers were for. Oh, okay. I, I, I mean, I haven't read up on them, so maybe. If, if, if you're a his, history expert, please do let us know and why the Meniers exist and what they did. But what I really find mind-boggling, and it kind of tickles my brain in, in a very pleasant way, is is because you can reactivate these menus. That's mm. one of the uh, cruxes of, of the gameplay. Like, you know, how do we keep these statues alive? You're traveling the world and trying to find resources to bring back to these statues and mm. reactivate them. But let's say, let's say that, okay, we're we're in a village, right? We're in this village, there's people in this village, and we're talking to them and the real people, and they sort of, you know, the stat- we, we move away, the statue fades out, and they're consumed by the weirdness the reality you know sort Mm -hmm. of dissipates them but if we're able to come back and reactivate that statue which is a possibility from what i understand then they sort of come back what happens to them in the what happens to the world in the interim like because we can still i i know that from playing the game that we can make our way back and interact with the world again that has disappeared that's 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 that's, that is cool i like that i i really like that from um sort of a world building perspective mm. i really like the world that it's trying to build too it it feels very fantasy but it's kind of a neat diversion from it and even though it does have the aesthetical similarities to things like dark souls oh it's mm. a dying world mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. and things are sort of crumbling apart and they're not quite the way they're meant to be mm. they're jarring in the way that we perceive reality yeah what i don't like uh-huh. is how the game almost forcefully takes me out of it sometimes and I feel begrudgingly upset with it for that. So so in one of the ways, it is some of the artwork. Okay. Because um, out of the four characters that are available in the game, uh, if you buy the core box, uh, only one of them is female. Everyone's white. And also uh, the female character is clad in a chainmail bikini, which just feels so odd why why is it that we're in this grim world where Mm. everyone's starving and Mm. tattered and in rags and the thing is we're not necessarily supposed to be like super heroic or whatever we're just people and and i would like to point out that a lot of the art is is quite tasteful in this game there's just a couple of yeah, some of it is really nice. Yeah, there's just a couple of figures that, that I was like, why was this choice made? Because... Kind of all of the characters, though. Like, even the guys are shirtless and, like, super muscular and the women are in these, you know, like you said, you know, these chainmail bikinis. It just doesn't really fit. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess there was this sort of faux egalitarian decision. Well, you know, we'll, we'll make everyone shirt. But that's that's not really... That's not the aesthetic that you're trying to carry through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that a little bit jarring and odd and kind of out of place. And and also, also just generally out of place in 2019, if that makes sense. Or but, at all, ever. Mm, but. but there's also these sort of, like I mentioned, there was a Diablo reference at mm. one point. And I thought, well, no, you know, hopefully you believe in the world you're trying to create enough to not put cheesy references into other, you know, kind of... Uh, yeah, it, it didn't feel like an Easter egg, did it? it yeah, didn't feel like, ah, like, this is cool. It just yeah. felt like, oh, why, why am I reading this line that's from Diablo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. But a lot of people have compared this to Seven Continent. Oh, I, no. I've heard a lot of people uh-huh. say... Because of the mechanism of laying cards to progress the game. Yes, and, and also because I think 
So there's a mechanism for combat, and then there's also a very similar mechanism for diplomacy. Uh-huh. You have these two separate decks. There's a combat deck and, and a diplomacy deck. And every time you encounter something that makes you fight or have a diplomatic encounter, which, by the way, I'm going to spoil this now, I think one of them works a lot better than another mm-hmm. th- than the other one. So let's let's stick with combat first. So let's say you're meant to fight something. So you have an enemy card, and that card has these links and connections. And you also draw cards from your combat deck, and you're meant to play cards every round. And the first card placing it is always free. And the more links you create, the more sort of damage. I'm abstracting the explanation. The more damage you can um, impart to the enemy, or also maybe chain off some different events. But playing a second and a third card becomes progressively more complicated because the links you are creating are more complicated. And there's this whole puzzle like, well, I have these cards. How do I match them together? Yeah, how do I sequence what, them? What's the sequence Softly. here? And then when you stop, you are forced to uh, have the enemy respond to you and then they'll deal you some damage or deal an effect that you're mm. not entirely happy about. And then that continues until you either run away or you are defeated or the enemy is defeated. Honestly, I quite like that system. I think it's a robust system. There's just one problem with it and i don't know if if it's because we're getting used to it i don't know about you but i found myself incredibly bored when the other one of us was having a combat encounter because not only was it involved i felt like i had no input in those decisions yeah and i think particularly for me because your character is more combat based so there Mm -hmm. you had a lot of combat encounters yeah and i didn't I mean, I, I guess I could have come round the other side of the table and helped you choose cards, or but you're supposed to be doing it on your own. It is a co-op game, but you're supposed to be choosing that sequence on your own. And mm. so I was just watching what you were doing, um, and I couldn't. I didn't feel like I could help in any way. I didn't have an, any abilities, even if I was with you in the on the same card in the same place. I didn't mm. feel like I could ever really influence the outcome of the combat well that's unless you've chosen and this is one of the cool things this game does anytime you do any kind of action and both you and uh someone who's you know another player if you're on the same card you can choose to engage in that action together and that can be moving together or fighting something together or progressing through the story together and maybe sharing the rewards or even doubling the rewards but also exhausting double the energy and Mm. the energy determines how much you can do per day yeah and there's this cool mechanism where you want to be as efficient as possible because these these meneers are going out and these big hulking statues actually on the map there's gigantic miniatures that look really cool and they have these dials and these dials each day as as they pass they turn down and down and down and it's a constant reminder that this world is fading away yeah and it, it puts pressure onto you, yeah. right? So I really I really like that element. I really like the element of uh, efficiency and trying to figure out whether we want to do something together, but is it risky or maybe not? Uh, yeah, because there are certain things that, um, again, without spoiling anything, that certain characters are better at doing, certain mm. interactions they're better at having mm-hmm. than others. So there were times when we did something and went, ah... We did that with the wrong character and then the other character had a go and and Mm -hmm. did the same. For me, 
I did really enjoy what you were just saying about that you could kind of assist or you could be in the same encounter with someone else and and help them or do different things that would get both of you rewards. But there was always that balance of, okay, well, I have to spend energy too to do this. But I did also feel like, oh, we've used the wrong character. I We have to do that again. Well, I spent energy to do it again. This is where the game is... It's a cliche line, but I'm starting to get worried about the game. And the problem is... I'm starting to get worried because I'm starting to feel invested in the game. And I think we've been spoiled with a choice of great puzzle games lately in in, yeah, in the whole maybe. board game sphere where we had um, Exit and Unlock and they just present you with intricate, interesting puzzles. But they're mostly interesting because they lead you on and they either it's a red herring or, you know, you've, you've followed the right path, right? They give you a little sousant of a hint and and then you're able to sniff it out, you know? In Tainted Grail, I mostly felt like the narrative choices that we've made were arbitrary because we've been given no lead. We just kind of have to go choose one and then maybe it'll work. But usually it's something completely unexpected happens. Very occasionally I felt like we had been given a hint at what we were supposed to do. But that didn't necessarily feel good because it felt... Like we were being sent in a certain direction that was the correct direction. Not very often, Mm. but that did happen. But um, at the end of each day, uh, you have a dream. Yes. And it gives you a hint. Um, And sometimes it will be a hint about the story or what you can do. and, And it will be generally related to the place that you're in. Yes. What I didn't necessarily like about that was that occasionally, and, and it, you know, they're trying to help you out, and I get that, and I appreciate that, but there were cards that I felt took me out of the game. I think I know what you were talking about. So uh, frequently when you when you explore a location, which is where you turn the card over, and then you read a little bit of text, and it says, actually, there's not enough text to fit on this card. Go to this book that has pages and pages on this location, and many, many choices that branch off into other choices. So you go to this book, and then it has about two or three options of what you can do and about five other options of what you could do if you've been to this place or that well, that's place. that's true also, and, yeah. And at one point, I remember, we we visited a location, and I'm not spoiling anything here, but we visited a location that specifically said, if this is the last chapter of the game, you could do this. And yeah. we're like, wait a minute, this is telling me something about the ending of the game that I actually don't want to know, but also because now I know... I've been kind of tantalized, but I can't engage with it in any way. And so the storybook structure is very peculiar and very odd. Mm. And I'm not necessarily going to say good. I enjoyed the writing in it, though. The writing, the writing is, is fine. pretty good. The writing is fine, definitely. And I'm not getting a strong sense of what our story is. No. Um, apart from, hey, we're a bunch of nobodies from a village trying to save the world. And we're meeting all these you know, Arthurian legend characters and mm. and and they tell us about how the world is not good. Mm. Th- that That's literally <laughs> like the, the sense and scope of the story that I got a feel for so far. And maybe it's too early on, but I feel like after having invested some good 10 hours of gameplay, um, I, I want to know by now already a little bit more about everything that's happening. I also want to say that one of my... Uh, once again, coming back to that word, worry. Um, I'm not worried about the game, but like I, I, I hope it doesn't play out like that. But uh, 
because this is a big open world puzzle, one of the very common things that happens in those games is that you are engaged by the narrative and by the premise mm-hmm. and by, uh, I think, Matt, Matt Lee's, uh, when he did his video on Cool Ghosts about uh, Breath of the Wild, the Legend mm-hmm. of Zelda game, he, he, he kind of uh, coined this idea that there's this magic, you know, mm-hmm. of, of, this, of this new world that you're exploring. Mm. And at some point that magic... Fizzles out. Fizzles out, and yeah. you're sort of left with a more mechanical core of it, right? I, I know we definitely hit that point with Seven Continent very early on. Yeah. And to the point where we found it incredibly dry, and actually realized that a lot of really bad tropes from adventure writing in Dungeons & Dragons that people used to write in the 70s and <laughs> 80s, you know? And now when people write D&D adventures, like, right, we, we're not doing that. This is really bad storytelling. Right. Dead ends and, you know, like, oh, haha, you died, stuff like that. Mm. Or just sending you on a wild goose chase. Mm. There was a lot of that and it was mm. really tedious. I think we're starting to see that in, in, in Tainted Grail as well. We just about hit on... On a few moments yeah. that certainly made us feel like you're just making us go around. I, I did feel like there were points where they were like, okay, we have this mechanism. How many different ways can we implement this into the game? Yes. Um, and that was a little frustrating because I was enjoying the discovery. Yes. I was enjoying turning over new cards, seeing what was there, finding out new things, looking at the little map that they give you to try and work out which direction we wanted to go in. I liked all of that. I didn't even mind the way that I had to keep going back to the same card and doing the same thing because I'd kind of messed up or not found out enough information Mm. that coming back. But it did feel like I was doing the same thing over and over again sometimes there's the food mechanism where you have to feed yourself at the end of like every that, day for right example. and and there's there's certainly some very obvious ways to get food and sometimes i have spent days in this game <laughs> just going well i'm a hunter i'll go i'll go get food a lot just keep getting food and and getting food and getting food and and and, and i honestly i know that it's there to make it seem a little bit more grim and punishing, like, oh, you have to survive. But that thing, that that mechanism thematically wears thin after some time, very, very thin, and I wished it wasn't there. I wished the game would just let us explore and engage with the story mm. and maybe be a little bit less mechanically fiddly. Mm. And talking about fiddliness... What I really didn't get on, I like the idea of having a combat deck and a diplomacy right. deck. Like, you know, some encounters are combat encounters and some you have to talk your way out of it. Yeah. They are so similar, but different in very minute ways. But also the difference, it felt like, well, we have to change up the diplomacy somehow. So so, so they added this, this sort of little mini game that basically makes diplomacy feel like combat, but more fiddly. And... <laughs> And and I just didn't get why it's structured like that. Why, if 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 you do want to separate those two things, why not make them different? And why not make it a different puzzle so it actually feels different? Whereas here it was like, well, this is more of the same, but a bit, little bit different, and it actually feels a little more swingy because mm. th- I felt like there were some cards that were like, well, this card is a no-brainer. Let's just mm. do that. It will clearly make us win this encounter. And, and I'm like, why Why do these cards exist? They, they Nothing like that exists in the combat deck. Every card has either a drawback or something like that. Mm. And and you're always, well, this card is great now, but maybe if I save it, you know, you're always kind of weighing up 
what cards are good and as you progress through the game you can get experience and buy new cards and, and combine your deck and I feel very invested in the combat deck I don't at all feel invested in the diplomacy, diplomacy deck, deck because first of all those encounters are much less frequent at least at this stage of the game so what yeah the from the cards that we've discovered yeah. mm, mm. but that doesn't ne- that's not necessarily true for you know when we progress through the game i think people who really enjoyed seventh continent we weren't those people but people who really enjoyed seventh continent i think they'll find a lot that they'll like mm. in tainted grail mm. and i think they'll uh engage in some ways it's definitely better because um seventh continent had this flawed premise of what if it's a 30 hour long game but then you know you can pause whenever you want to and that that doesn't feel like a story structure that a game should start with because you have to you have to make those 30 hours very cohesive and it, mm. it just didn't feel like they had a way of making that happen this this is more parceled out and i think because of that it's better mm. but but whether we can recommend this game or not, they definitely remember. We don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know yet. And um, we're going to, I think we're going to keep playing. Yeah. I'm excited to play more. I'm excited to see yeah. what happens. But I think that's a good thing because it means that you have enjoyed what you have done and you don't want it to go downhill. Yes, that's a very good and positive way to end our discussion about this bleak, bleak game. <laughs> Talking of leaving a comment on our website, Elaine, did you know that we have recently redesigned... Well, we started to redesign our website, but I think it looks a lot better and is a lot more user-friendly right now. Yeah. But how do I check out this website? Well, you can go on nopenincluded.com. But but more importantly, for people who uh, don't follow us on social media but do appreciate a good dog picture, we have created a secret Easter egg page that you can visit called... No pun included dot com slash Bessie, B-E-S-S-I-E, and find a cornucopia of pictures of our cute little dog. I, I, I think she's adorable, and I think people will get a great kick out of uh, just just a couple of don't good say, dog don't pictures. Don't say kick out of the dog, that's wrong. That's not what I was going to say. Uh, shall we talk about uh, Cloudspire? Oh boy, before we begin, uh, I would like to say that... We've only played Class Part once, so this is out of everything we talked about today. This is the most first impressions, first impressions kind of first impressions. But oh, this game is so big, it's so sprawling in terms not just in size, but it does weigh about I don't know 10 kilos or something like that. Just the box alone. But you know, the question on everyone's lips is can I play it in the bath? You can absolutely what? because Chip Theory Games, who's the publisher of Cloud Spire, has this whole thing about making their game's waterproof. So instead of cardboard tiles, you have neoprene tiles. Instead of cardboard pieces, you have poker chips. And instead of plastic dice, you have plastic dice. But they're really nice plastic dice. You have poker chips and a neoprene mat. It's basically poles. Not only that, but this is the only game that I know of in existence that offers neoprene on neoprene action. Because separately you can order a playmat to put your neoprene tiles on. (laughs) And that playmat is made out of neoprene. So, I I don't know if anything can beat that. No. Conceptually. Shuffling neoprene isn't as easy as cardboard. But and it, it is something this game instructs you to do. <laughs> but it is better if you spill your tea on it. Definitely. And not that we've done that yet. No. But but we're looking forward to it when it happens. <laughs> what is Cloudspire in terms of big picture? I don't even know how to broach this. But effectively, imagine a game where you build a map, terrain, 
out of tiles and then you put your fortress on one end and the other player puts their fortress and there can be a third and a fourth player and uh, they will have heroes and units that they'll recruit and those heroes and units march towards the other end. And try and, and storm their bastion. Exactly. And it is reminiscent of tower defense genre of games and MOBA, which is multiplayer online battle arena, where you have uh, heroes and they all have different abilities and how those in abilities interact creates for very emergent gameplay. And my word is there the potential for emergent gameplay in this game? Because if you felt like Root is asymmetrical, get ready for Cloudspire, which comes with its own separate sheet for each faction of, in very small text, lots and lots and lots of different abilities that are all mm. keyworded. So because the units in the game are made out of poker chips, and the way they work is basically you will have a poker chip that represents a unit and that unit will have a bunch of health and underneath it you will place a bunch of, a bunch of health poker, poker chips. chips, right? And uh, you also have uh, spires, which are these towers. So one of the things obviously you have in tower defense games and, and in mobile genre games as well is you have towers that kind of stop the enemy movement or slow it down until mm. the towers eventually are knocked down. In this game, it works slightly differently because you build up towers and mm. they might get knocked down and you build other ones. And actually, the the ability to build towers and who gets in the right tower at the right mm. place is is one of the... It's crucial. Yeah, key strategical elements because you want to get your tower in just the right place. It just prevents the right minion from passing through. But, but, my I God. I ended up with such a... a when we played, I ended up with that cool setup where I just had towers lining kind of the entrance to my fortress. And, and the center. And also well, the, yeah, the exit with, from my fortress. I ended up and, with a lot of towers. Yeah. But those two particularly that were defending straight in front of my fortress, mm. like you struggled really to get anything past that. And that was one of the key bits I missed. So one of the cool things that happened in our very first game was... So the game is structured into four waves and each wave you have more and more minions that you can recruit mm. from a p huge potential pool of different minions and heroes. Uh, is I I thought in within the very first wave I struck a crucial blow. Uh, I managed to outmaneuver your minions. Oh, you were doing so well. And yeah, I, like I managed to make, I think, twice as many resources mm. as you have. And re making resources is a very key moment in this game because the more resources you have, the more abilities you can mm. get and also the more mercenaries you can the more purchase. Kind of purchasing power you have. Yeah, yeah and, but also the more you can upgrade your fortress mm. and the more spies you can build. Resources are important and resources in, in this game, there's two kinds of resources, but the one we're talking about is called source mm -hmm. and it's kind of like mana, basically. And there's also... Or ketchup. Uh, or ketchup. Uh, <laughs> Also, combat points, Elaine. Thank you. Sorry. It's a type of sauce. Is it is a type of... You're right. It is a type of sauce. But, you know, uh, it's not necessarily the predominant source of Cloud Spire. Is it not? Okay. I, I, okay, I've not believed I've seen any ketchup okay. re references so far. But, yeah, I've, I managed to accrue quite a lot of resources. And mm. I thought, this is putting me in a dominant lead. But, of course, the mistake I made in the second round is I underestimated how fast you could build Spire's all across the map mm. and then i just struggled to get through and and not only that but you you because the variety of spires you have is is quite great you have spires that are belong to your faction but also mm. mercenary spires that you, you can hire and they all have different they abilities do different things. Yeah. and they interact in 
with the game in so many unpredictable ways. And because the minions have a kind of predetermined movement, yes. there was at points nothing you could do because the minion was going to move into the place where my tower would attack it. Exactly. And and they, they it felt like you've built towers that very specifically understood what my faction does and mm. wants to do and just trounced that. And mm. there I felt like I was climbing a very... I don't think I won that game. I, I, I think you won in the end, but I th- that was that was a good puzzle. I enjoyed the puzzle. That was definitely an interesting puzzle. Uh, but every... I, I feel like this is one of those games where if you want a game that will take you ages and ages to master, yeah. there is so much need to just dig in. Because if this is a send-off to the MOBA genre, yeah. it feels very much like someone from the 90s teleported forward in time... <laughs> discovered the MOBA genre, then went back in time to the 90s and took all of those 90s game design ideas, then teleported back in time and put it on Kickstarter. Uh, Wow. That's how I would essentially describe Cloudspire. And this isn't necessarily a slight because I felt like I was going to be overwhelmed by Cloudspire and everything that it had to offer. But actually, I found that the rulebook was in the end quite clear uh, maybe because I watched uh, the tutorial videos that were produced by Chip Theory Games, and they were fantastic tutorial videos at actually explaining mm. not only how the core elements of the game work, but also how each faction works and what it wants to do and how it interacts and every ability that it has. Because some of these uh, abilities are quite... I don't want to use the word obtuse, but they are obtuse in terms of Learning They're them. hard to work out what they actually do yeah. in the game. You you read the text and you go, oh, okay, but but how it actually interacts within the game and what it's going to do for you if you use it is quite hard to work out. Well, yeah, there's actually one of the factions that we haven't played with, which mm. I don't remember the name for, but the birds, basically, because okay. there's a faction of birds. Apparently, they have these uh, free keywords that interact with each other in a very specific way, which pretty much creates a whole new rule system in the game for that faction alone. I don't think I would have been able to puzzle out how that worked just from reading the sheet. But because I was watching those videos that were really, really well done and very clear in terms of explanations, mm. I, I felt like I could handle this game. Mm. And this is a big sprawling game. Uh, so sprawling, in fact, I remember teaching you, and we put this clip on... Uh, social media but uh, on the podcast page I'll put a little link to that tweet where I'm at some point about 70% uh, or somewhere there it was close towards the ending of the explanation Uh, you just fell apart into tears and into laughter (laughs) and you 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 were laughing long enough that I could take out my phone turn the camera up on hit record for about 20 seconds of you just just laughing in hysterics and maybe right. crying a little bit. But the crucial thing was that I hadn't said anything funny. You... No, you said something completely mundane, but it was just... I think I had so many questions in, in my head at that point that it just came out as laughter. Yeah. And it just came out as, as the giggles, a fit of the giggles, but also slightly crying. You know, you know when you were laughing so much that you end up crying. I, it was I, it was exactly that. And I, I was not sure what to do with myself because I knew I was taking a very candid moment, but I wasn't sure if you were actually okay. So this is, <laughs> this is a game that can induce that. And it's very telling just from the production standpoint alone, because this is, once again, the first game that I've seen that offers a $65 cosmetic upgrade mm. 
with yeah. w- with a box that is actually larger than the corset. And all it does <laughs> is it offers these plastic giant stands for the spires because the spires are just poker chips. But if you want them to stand out on your map, you have these huge plastic... But aren't they cool? I mean, I don't want to say miniatures, right? Because... The, they I mean, the miniatures of a tower. Yeah, they're miniatures they're of a tower. Towers, yeah. yeah. But but they do stand out. But I, I'm not sure I would recommend anyone buying a 65... It does, like, from a practical point of view, it does make it a lot easier to see what your tower is, what someone else's tower is, compared to, oh, that's my hero, or that's a minion. You can see straight away yeah. where your towers are. And I'm not sure it's worth $60 to do that, but it does make it easier. But that's an option in this game. And mm. I, I think it is very representative of the scope of its ideas. Mm. If 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 this sort of sprawl terrifies you, then then stay away from this game. But if if you are interested enough to dig into it, I would say maybe wait for our coverage because mm. I think we'll definitely be delving more and more into Cloudspire and uh, I think a video review will be coming sometime in the future once we've definitely come to grips more with the game and explored more of it. But so far, I think our first impression is we're quite flabbergasted. Yeah. We're, we're quite enamored. But also there's some things in it that I already see as I'm I'm not sure if I would recommend this to people, mm. you know, kind of territory because um the event cards specifically I was I was really not pleased because the wild swings that so each round, each wave, which there are four of, uh, apart from the first one, you'll draw an event card and it'll alter the rules of the game. But it seems to swing so wildly. And, and in a game that's very tactical and also a lot about planning out that's how true. things are going to move, it feels very arbitrary. So much so. And here's the thing. So I was reading the solo rules for the right. game just to, just, just to have a read. I'm not a big solo player, but I wanted to see how they worked. And actually, the event cards are removed in that mode. And the reason for that is because the solo games are structured more like a puzzle, yeah. right? Here's a gauntlet. Can you yeah. beat it? But if you introduce a random variable, that gauntlet can be tarnished. And I, 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 I see that they clearly saw that events wouldn't work in the solo mode. But then I don't understand why they thought they would work it in a, in, in a more competitive mode. No. Where you're actually, you know, the puzzle is your opponent. And that's already a more dynamic puzzle. And you're introducing an even more dynamic variable. I don't think that's something... That works very well. And the other thing, and I know a lot of people really complain about this, or some 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 reviewers have negatively spoken out about the whole nature of the game being planning out a lot of, oh, well, I'm going to buy these minions and these minions and these minions, and that takes a very brief period. And then a lot of the movement is actually automated, semi-automated mm-hmm. in terms of how these minions move. Your heroes flit about I, however I you like. I don't mind that. Because See, it's like programming. It's just... How you plan you plan what you want to do and then it goes ahead and does it. You program the robot and then off it goes and makes you a cup of tea or whatever. Exactly. I didn't find that fiddly and tedious. And actually, uh, there's two things that I liked about it. So first of all, yes, it is like programming and a lot of the game mm. is in, oh, is this going to work or not? But also because there are so many wildly divergent abilities and mm. the factions, um, I'm not sure asymmetry can have levels. But it feels very asymmetrical, if if that yeah, makes sense. Of course sense. It can, yeah. And and because there's so such a big sprawl of abilities, 
every time you play, you almost feel like a kid discovering that, like, oh, this can do that, and this can do this, and oh, this is how it's going to play out. So I don't feel like it's, okay, it is automated, but in some ways, that automation brings about a lot of surprises. And I think that's interesting, and that's why I want to explore Cloudspire a lot more. Talking of negative variability, though, which is mm. what you were saying earlier, um, there, there are also uh, treasure cards. Yes. Some of them aren't, don't necessarily give you something good. Yeah, because you have to work a lot to get one. Right. They're really hard to get, like loot cards, right? Yeah. And the one that I ended up getting... Was horrible. Was awful. It completely balked my plan. Yeah. And what I'd built up for and what I was in the middle of doing. And, and in the end, we actually said... Okay. Yeah, I felt so sorry for you. One. Yeah, just draw a new one because that's just because not fair. it just fair. would have stopped my game there and then. Yeah. Like like two hours in or whatever, <laughs> it would have just stopped the game. And so, yeah, there's 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 a lot of these swingy elements mm. in Cloudspire that I'm not sure I'm a big fan of, but I really want to explore this game mm. more. Be- just because there's this sort of pure joy of... of it's like the joy of discovering a very mechanical role-playing game for the first time. You have this big tome and there's all these character classes with all these different abilities and they all do these different things and you just kind of enjoy reading Mm. about it and then also you want to play because you want to see how it plays out on the field of battle, right? Mm. I think Cloudspire evokes that element of a game and... I, I like that element of the game. I want to delve more yeah. into it. So I, I enjoyed the game. For a game that it's, has a lot going on, it feels very straightforward. I feel I feel comfortable ending our discussion on Cloudspire here. Mm. And uh, once again, just saying, wait for our video coverage because that'll probably be a lot more definitive and conclusive and a lot more explored and researched. <laughs> Elaine. Yes, Efka. We have a question from Lambert, who discovered, no pun included, recently, based on the fact that we have run a game of Blood on the Clock Tower in a changing room in a convention in, in Perth, Scotland. in Scotland. Nice. Yes. Uh, they wrote in asking about Gloomhaven. So, Gloomhaven. Sure, I heard you discuss it after your first game, seen the YouTube clip you did, but how did it fare? I mean, after all the excitement, did you get a group together and finish the campaign? How did you find the cycle of brand new characters, figure out how they play, advance and tune them and then discard? Was there enough story? Are the little events ultimately eventually meaningless? Did you approach things differently based on which character you have been playing? Did you attempt yourself at Forgotten Circles? I have Tons more questions, but you get the drift. Personally, we have been playing around 18 months, once a month, but then the whole day. We have done about 50 scenarios and are finishing up the side content before doing the third mini-boss on the way to the end of the main campaign. Boy, that's a lot of questions, Lambert. Yes, Lambert does continue with, so pretty please could you dedicate one slot on your podcast to talk about your experience? Of course we can, Mm. but very briefly, because it just so happens that today is the day when Isaac Childress has announced a new Gloomhaven game called Frosthaven, Frosthaven, apparently. We don't know anything about it. I think there's going to be more revealed at PAX Unplugged, but I'm obviously very excited. Yes, we have been playing more Gloomhaven. We actually do Mm. have a semi-regular group also where we meet up and break out Gloomhaven and uh, our characters have advanced and we've unlocked new ones and Mm. uh, had some very difficult moments saying goodbye to... You you really struggled, haven't you? Yeah, I really did. I was playing the Mind Thief and I was so invested in that character and, and who they were and 
all their little quirks and everything and then I suddenly had to play this new character and I thought who is this person I'm playing a character now this isn't me anymore well isn't it a bittersweet moment though of like saying goodbye and then also discovering something new and exciting this is true it's like opening an advent calendar right you open the next door the next day and it's a different chocolate or picture or whatever is in there that's cool i will be honest with you elaine i'm a lot more excited about opening new gloomhaven characters well, no, than, yeah, a, than a bit of nav be, chocolate there should be a gloomhaven advent calendar i mean <laughs> gloomhaven is an advent calendar that's true <laughs> but you don't have to wait till december to open it i guess well in some cases longer because <laughs> right yeah well i mean how long did did i have that character for i, I don't know years that's, right that's, like well, yeah. yeah okay probably uh i think that's why i had such trouble letting go but no it is cool opening a, a new a new thing um but gloomhaven is a game that we we tend to keep going back to if we're not quite sure what to play or, you know, we haven't had time to read the rules for a new game or yeah. people are tired or have had a long day. We That's the game that we go back to. It's it's our sort of safe space right. in a certain way because we feel comfortable because games can be intimidating sometimes. Even as board game reviewers, we just get overwhelmed by, yeah. you know, the amount of rules you have to learn and the overhead and, and sometimes introducing a certain game to friends that you know might not enjoy that game. Yeah. So Gloomhaven feels very safe and very comfortable, and we all enjoy it still. Because I'm, we know that our gaming group enjoy it. Yeah, and mm. and I think the fact... Or at least they've pretended really well for a long, <laughs> the longest time. Well, one of them bought their own copy just well, just just to have. That's just true. like, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I also want to have Gloomhaven, even though we are playing this one. And here's the thing. I think it's a real testament... That as board game reviewers, who we have to play different games mm. all the time because that is both of our jobs now. Mm. We still go back to Gloomhaven, and actually, uh, in uh, two days' time, we're also going to be once again playing Gloomhaven because we need to nail in uh, the final playtest for the Gloomhaven adventure that we're going to be right. sending out to our Kickstarter right. backers. Uh, so yeah, we're clearly very invested in this game. I'm not sure I want to say much more in depth, and there were a lot of questions that you asked, Lambert, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna maybe not answer them not because we're copping out but maybe because there's so much new gloomhaven stuff that's being announced that we're going to save it for a dedicated video whenever that rolls around Mm. because but it's soon to say that a lot of the things that you've asked for i think we feel uh, there's there's more nuanced feelings but we feel fairly positive about a lot of them so yeah gloomhaven is is definitely still the number one thing for us which is a big deal. <laughs> it is a pretty big deal, I think. Um, that's a good positive note to end the yeah. podcast on. Yeah. Everything comes back to Gloomhaven in the end. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, we play games, but everything comes back to Gloomhaven. It's like coming back home. Isaac, uh, you can send us that check <laughs> in the mail now. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? <laughs> goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.